Podglomerate original. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, the carbon copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, the carbon copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to the carbon copy on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. I never knew how devastating a voicemail could be. I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. When I started making this podcast, I thought it was going to be a story about weight loss. I thought chronicling a year of my life, ending with a month-long backpacking trip, would make an interesting story. I wasn't expecting it to start with the death of my mom. I wasn't prepared to tell this story. Of course I wasn't. I wasn't prepared for my mom to die. I didn't know what it would mean for my family. I didn't know what it would mean for my relationship with Rocky. I couldn't begin to understand what and how I was processing all this. I questioned my hopes and I re-examined my goals. If growth requires change, I was fine stunting my growth. This change was too much, too hard to handle. So I threw myself into planning this through hike. It was a comfortable and welcome distraction. Spending nights googling tips and reading blogs from previous hikers, I watched almost every YouTube video of people's hikes, searching for secret revelations about where to camp, what gear is the lightest, and what to expect. And just like that, almost one year exactly after my mom's death, 
my dad picked up me and Rocky from our place in Los Angeles and drove us the 200 miles to our campground in the Eastern Sierras, where we would start this long hike the next morning. It is Tuesday, July 30th at 6.28 p.m. And Rocky and I just finished dinner. Andrew's dad just headed out. Yeah, my dad dropped us off at Crabtree Meadows Trailhead Campground. Yep. The car ride up was a mix of small talk, my dad checking we had everything we needed, and perhaps a little bit of parental jealousy. While we were talking, there was also a hope that specific conversations wouldn't happen. A little bit of backstory. Growing up, I don't ever remember getting grounded. Instead, we'd always talk it out, debate, and discuss whatever happened. Dinners were always loud and everyone talked over everyone. But as I grew older, some of my views shifted from my parents as they do. And as much as our arguments might have been based out of love, trying to convince the other person you want them to see things from a new perspective you thought could help them, I soon learned that very rarely can you argue someone into change. My dad admittedly likes to win. In his mind, it's either convince me I'm wrong or I convince you you're wrong. Perhaps as a reaction to this, I became much more of a you-can't-lead-someone-where-they-don't-want-to-go type of person. This naturally caused some tension, and it can be challenging to believe in someone's intentions while struggling with their conclusions. The year after my mom's death understandably brought up many things held loosely under the surface. Working as a podcaster isn't necessarily the most lucrative career, and my dad worried about my future. He couldn't understand why I preferred to live in Los Angeles when there were so many beautiful suburbs, and I wasn't going to church as much as he'd like. But we'd usually find some common ground for conversation. I hoped our long car ride to our campsite would be the same and wouldn't bring up painful or well-trodden topics. I wasn't looking forward to talking about them right before entering the backcountry, with no cell service or internet and with plenty of idle time to replay conversations and imagine arguments. Um, you were just saying right before we started recording that you're scared about being bored. Yeah, not scared, but... Nervous. It's a weird thing to be scared about. But after a while, you kind of get lost in your thoughts, and sometimes the thoughts are not good. Yeah, being alone with your thoughts can be Bad. a privilege, but it can also be... Very, it can be a, you can start to sort of fold in on yourself. Which is easy for me. It's easy for me as well, and it's part of the reason I ended up here. And so... In the spirit of overanalyzing, let's rewind a little. For most of my childhood, my family would go camping with a group of our friends every Memorial Day weekend. Twelve years in a row, we camped at Hume Lake, a small mountain lake just outside of Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. After that, we switched it up and ended up camping at what would become the new regular, Bass Lake, a small mountain lake just outside of Yosemite National Park. Weirdly, I've almost grown up on either end of this trail. Perhaps this subconsciously placed the idea in my mind of hiking for a month through the Sierra Nevadas. The only thing was, back then, I hated hiking. 
I didn't mind walking to the camp store to buy some candy though. Anytime we planned an afternoon or day hike, I would begrudgingly go. It didn't help that one of our family's go-to hikes was Angel Falls, whose trailhead prominently showcased the exact location where people had died during their treks to the waterfall. I don't know why they would do that and name the waterfall after a creature from the afterlife. Who was the PR person for this hike? They were giving me every excuse not to have to hike it. Truthfully though, it wasn't safety concerns that fueled my distaste for hiking. I was fighting against the pain and discomfort of exercise. I was ashamed. The first time we set off on the trail to Angel Falls as a group, we stopped near a creek for lunch, about halfway up the trail. After a short rest, some of the group decided they wanted to wait while the majority went on to finish the hike. We'd all meet up again on their way back down. I chose to be part of the group that stayed behind. This didn't make my dad happy. At some point, he decided to turn back from the group hiking and come back and get me. I think he had good intentions, but I really didn't want to finish the hike. I started walking back up with him and we argued as we hiked on, trying to catch up with the rest of our friends. Eventually, we turned around and never made it to the falls. A smaller group of our family and friends would go on to hike this same trail the following year and the next and so on. To this day, I've never finished it. Yet, here I found myself one day into a 200 mile long hike. July 31st, we made, what's it called? Breakfast? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oatmeal. oatmeal. We made oatmeal for breakfast. And some chocolatey, chocolatey, chocolatey Some milk. instant breakfast, carnation instant breakfast to get some calories. Um, and it seemed like when we woke up, Rocky, you had uh, sort of done a 180. And yeah, I, uh, I woke up feeling excited about the what we're doing and how pretty it is up here. It's already so crazy and it's so pretty. And Forgetting the word oatmeal? On the first day of the hike was not the type of hardship I had expected on this journey. We're doing a couple shorter days in the beginning so we can sort of get used to the altitude and get our bodies used to walking this many miles with our big heavy packs on them. This was a tip I had read in the months of preparation leading up to the hike. I created a spreadsheet with the number of miles between possible campsites, elevation gains, water sources, and more. Keeping miles short in the beginning was an easy and practical solution that made sense on my computer. But there are greater challenges that don't fit as nicely into the little boxes on a Google Doc. Hello. Hey, Donald. How's it going? Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. Can you hear me all right? This is my friend, Donald Black. So, random question. I guess not so random. Um, but you've hiked, you've done some backpacking just randomly for no apparent reason. Uh, what advice would you have to someone who's never backpacked before, who's uh, who's about thinking about doing the JMT? That person is me. Good to know. He was the only person I knew who had done something like this. So I wanted to know ahead of time what I was getting myself into. He told me that yes, it would be physically challenging, 
But a long distance through hike can also be challenging to your brain and emotions. You gotta work on like where your brain's gonna be feeling low. Because it's really hard. It's like how do you train your brain? If you couldn't work that out, he said, you have to work on where your brain is going to be and how do you train your brain? Yeah, I could work for months on end trying to get my body in the best shape possible, but that was only part of the process. It was exciting having the goal of completing this backpacking trip, which required me to get to a specific physical level. Having a concrete date and a reason for my fitness goal, and the accountability of making a podcast about it, helped me begin to see real physical transformation for the first time. But the idea of training my brain seemed more daunting. What does that even mean? We don't have gyms for our minds. Or is that what therapy is? I had been avoiding answering these questions because it would force me to actually deal with my issues. Not to mention the compounding fact that when I started training for this hike, my mom had cancer for a second time. If I'm candid, when my mom got sick, it was motivating in a weird and selfish sort of way. It's cliche, I know, the whole YOLO, live like you're dying, bucket list sentimentality. But seeing what my mom was going through was a daily reminder of how our futures aren't guaranteed and how it's not worth making excuses and putting things off until tomorrow. And so my training, my journey, my goal had a new and strange motivating force. You know, a month ago, in July, I stepped on a scale and I weighed 396 pounds. That's, that's four pounds away from 400 pounds, which is a lot. When I set out on a journey to hike for a month through the Sierra Nevadas, I thought this would be a story about weight loss. Little did I know it would be about loss of a completely different kind. Two days ago, my mom died. It still feels weird saying it out loud. In... May, June, the end of May, beginning of June, um, we found out she had abdominal cancer. Um, and just a year before that, she had colon cancer. And so we were all very worried. She was in a lot of pain. And um, Every week, I'd drive the hour from Los Angeles to Orange County to visit my mom. My mom was weak and didn't have the energy for long conversations, but I wanted to be there regardless. Most weekends, I went home to be there for my mom and ended up being there for my dad. The doctors basically gave us the diagnosis that without chemo or without treatment, it would be a few months, and uh, if the treatment worked well, it could be a year to maybe three years at best. And... Uh, Three years was a time frame I could wrap my head around. Enough time to properly say goodbye, share moments and memories. But that wasn't the plan. Soon I'd learn what palliative care meant, 
as I watched my mom and dad choose between prioritizing her comfort or attempting new treatment that would increase her pain in hopes it could heal her. And then on Wednesday night, late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, she woke up and um, she was taken to the hospital and uh, passed away there at the hospital. And uh, I woke up Thursday morning to a message from my dad. I don't know why I am uh, recording this, but... I must have slept through the ringing. I called my dad back, and we cried. I waited in an unnatural shock for Rocky to get home from work. But before I could tell her, she saw it on my face. She cried no in disbelief. This was all happening too soon. How can something be both expected and unexpected at the same time? I was sad and angry and all the things you feel when a parent dies. I had first-hand evidence of the whole future-is-not-guaranteed thing. My mom wanted to go to the beach one more time. Go camping with her friends one more time. Sleep in her own bed instead of the rented hospital one in the dining room one more time. But there wouldn't be any more times. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com wait. That's better, H-E-L-P dot W-E-I-G-H-T.
If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. Almost one year after my mom's death, Rocky and I were going over our packs and waiting for my dad to pick us up. It is July 30th, the morning we leave. How are you feeling about our trip? Good, good, tired, nervous, happy, excited, sad, I don't know. <laughs> There's, it's a mixed bag of emotions. Would you say you're more excited or more nervous? Um, I actually, I think I'm more nervous even though it doesn't come across that way because I'm realizing how I express nerves is by shutting into myself. <laughs> like where I'm like, everything is fine, everything is, like I, I feel like I don't feel any emotion right now. <laughs> You're numb. I'm numb. Um, cope, baby, cope. Yeah, I'm, I think uh, I just got nervous because I think my pack's heavier than I was expecting. Oh, I don't Because I kept on adding, like, like I did, I forgot to, to, to consider the weight of the recording gear. Ah. And... It's very heavy? No, but it's just a bunch of little stuff adds up, you know? Yeah. So it'll be fine, but it's just, it's, it, was, it was a lot lighter a week ago. Yeah. In preparation for the hike, I researched and weighed all the gear we planned to take. Entering it into a spreadsheet so we'd know what to expect when we first felt the total weight of our packs. I thought if I could see it on my computer screen, it would somehow prepare me for the experience of it. Yes, visualizing is important, but it was also my way of trying to control the unknown. While I made these lists, it reminded me of the half-hearted debates I used to have with my mom. She was an over-preparer, and I am an over-planner. Looking back... I can see that these were both attempts to avoid stress and pain, but I was convinced my way was better. This was such a part of our relationship that it even made its way into her eulogy. My mom was always overprepared, um, and that's to say, in my opinion, um, whenever she was sick or someone was in the hospital, she'd learn the lengthy, complicated term for whatever ailment and recite it in perfect Latin. She carried around seemingly hundreds of reusable shopping bags in the back of her car. So many that it seems like it would fill an entire shopping cart. Uh, leaving one to wonder if when she shopped, she would take two carts, one full of bags and one for the groceries. I used to think my mom's desire to have extra was her way of not planning or not thinking ahead. It bugged me because I felt that if she just planned a little more, her life would be better and it would cut down on what I thought was an unnecessary abundance or even waste. 
In a way, now, I can see this was her way of planning. The piles of shopping bags in her car were just a different way of grasping for control. My way of controlling an unknown situation was to be minimal, systematic, efficient. My mom and my dad and I, we all like to go camping. And I'm the type of person who thinks I already have way too much camping gear and I romanticize. Like people can just take everything in a backpack and that's it. But my mom brings not one, but two coffee makers in their huge trailer. Um, and one day we were talking, I was teasing her about how much extra stuff she brings, and we went through the trailer and there was a bag of dog food. And to put this in context, my parents didn't even have a dog at the time. Uh, and this was proof. You know, I, uh, who goes camping with a few gallons of dog food when they don't even have a dog? Um, Mom said that she had it in case one of her camping friends needed it for their dog if they ran out of food. She really loved being able to help someone out like that. Looking around, not just in her trailer, but everywhere in her life, you could see how Mom was orchestrating everything so that she could help someone if they needed it. Her heart was big with room for others and she would always put her comfort aside if it meant, if it meant she could help someone. I think that's proof to why we're all here today. We've all experienced a little bit of mom's kindness and love, her friendship and tireless support, and dog food, literal or metaphorical. I love you, mom, and I miss you. Thanks. We're all always trying to be in control. When my mom got sick, one of my brothers spent nights researching how certain foods might extend my mom's life or help fight the cancer. My other brother took the opportunity to spend even more time with his family and teach his kids about grief and loss. I tried to quantify it. When my mom died, I wanted to figure out the most efficient way to grieve. You know, you need to be allowed grief. Grief, if you repress it, does really difficult things. And what happens with grief is it comes out summer. If you try to repress it, it's, it is going to come out and... I always say to somebody, and I've lost, I've had friends who've lost loved ones, and I always say to them, let it come out on your terms. Let it come out. On your, I, I will never be uncomfortable with your pain. If you ring me in the middle of the night and you're sobbing, I will never be uncomfortable with that. I will never ask you to internalize that. This is Niall Breslin. How, how do you, uh, like, is there a way that you like to be introduced? Are you a podcaster, author, musician? Honestly, whatever you feel. I'm not touchy about it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do lots of different things, but I'm not very protective of any of them. While he does do a lot of really fantastic things, I first got to know Niall because of his work with and his study of mindfulness. I'm a mindfulness therapist. I, I did my master's in mindfulness-based interventions. I've always found this area really interesting. The, the story I'm kind of telling is uh, it's a period of my life where nothing went as planned, so to speak. And I decided to go on a, a month-long backpacking trip through the Sierra Nevadas here. And I recounted the story of my training, my goal, and my mom's death to Niall to get his take on it. You experienced acute grief, which is the most painful pain on earth. And the problem with that type of pain is often as individuals were forced to repress it or internalize it or to pretend it's okay. But really, if we all express grief the way we felt it, we would just scream and scream and scream and fall apart and cry. 
but we're not allowed to do that by society. And one of the most common phrases you'll hear in Ireland is, I'm grand. Hmm. No, you're not. You're in the worst pain you've ever experienced. And really, this is where it comes down to it. Uh, for me, Andrew, is our culture and our society forces us to internalize what is very normal human feelings and emotions. And the people around us who are really uncomfortable with those difficult emotions force us to internalize them. I've heard it said that internalizing these emotions can be like pressing on the gas and brakes of your car at the same time. When we try and ignore or press down these feelings, we create stress. Ironically, it's a fear of stress that motivates me to internalize and silence the overwhelming emotions. This doesn't quite work with the analogy, but I feel the need to point out that my mom drove with both feet, right on the gas, left on the brake. Apparently, this is how Formula One drivers drive, but I don't think she learned it from them. It was just how she'd always done it, but she made sure to teach me not to do it that way. As I dealt with my mom's death, I thought that grieving efficiently meant I was grieving well. But in reality, my efficiency was a way to get over it as quickly as possible. I wanted to move on. I didn't want to feel this pain anymore. Practically, I still had a date circled on a calendar. I had a backpack I still needed to buy. And many more miles I needed to walk if I was going to be able to do this hike. And all of that was a welcome distraction that helped me avoid the depression that comes after losing a parent. I felt a very strong pressure to be like, you know, oh, my mom's in a better place. This is a good thing. I mean, it's sad that we're going to miss her, obviously, but it's like, I understand and I can, I can, I don't, I don't fault anyone for, for saying those or, or coping that way, but it, it also felt strange sometimes, like denying what was actually going on. There is an element of comfort to that, you know, if you believe that. And there is, and we shouldn't take that away. But at the end of the day, that shouldn't stop you being in all sorts of pain. Because pain is good. I know this sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but pain means you're alive. This is never more evident than when you're hiking at elevation with a 20-something pound bag on your back. Without a doubt, this through hike would be the most physically challenging thing I'd ever do. From day one... I lost count of how many breaks I needed to take to catch my breath. Rocky would often hike ahead and wait for me at the top of a climb, and I worried she was annoyed at my slow pace. My feet hurt. My back hurt. My knees hurt. Even if I wasn't tired, I'd stop at every rock or stump that was chair height so I could sit down without the extra effort of having to take my pack off and put it on again. Even though I felt the pain of thru-hiking... My body felt better and stronger than it had since I could remember. Every time I rested, I was filled with a sense of awe and wonder and surrounded by beauty. And every sore spot, achy joint, and labored breath was a constant reminder that I was here, on the trail, this day. And it wasn't just a date on a calendar anymore. So mindfulness is a buzzword that has been utterly commodified and transformed and redefined to be digestible to the Western world, essentially. Okay. For me, mindfulness is that window into your soul. And it is the ability to sit with the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, everyone thinks mindfulness, and this is the perception we've created, is because every image you see is just this 
girl or guy looking perfectly happy sitting on a rock with the sunset behind them. Most of my meditations are horrible and I'm bringing up stuff I don't want to be bringing up, but I can bring it up and I can sit with it because I've trained myself to sit with that stuff. And that's the stuff that does the damage. You know, that's the stuff that can really hold you back and let you suffer and, and fill you with shame and guilt. And if you can disempower that stuff, if you can break that down and, and, and say, listen, I've experienced this, but you are not defining me anymore. That's the real power of mindfulness. And now I'm not saying that is, in terms of mindfulness-based therapy, that's essentially what you're doing. You're trying to get people to sit with the things they don't want to sit with. This is unavoidable when you're hiking for hours a day alone in the mountains. The thoughts will find you. I doubted my ability. I felt I was holding Rocky up. And I just spent a day in a car with my dad on the anniversary of my mom's death. Was this hike a retreat? Or was I retreating? By not taking the time to sit with the things I didn't want to sit with, it was like I was hiking without a map. If you're not constantly checking in with your surroundings, it's easy to get lost. The first thing I, I, I would say is feel it all. Like genuinely feel it all. Every emotion is valid. Bring a real deep curiosity to every single emotion you experience. Curiosity is a really powerful thing, and it's one of the principles of practice of mindfulness-based interventions. So when you feel that slight overwhelm, when you sit down after a long day and you sit down, you get a bit upset because you, you bring up a memory of your mother. Sit with it and be curious to where in your body you're feeling it. Do I feel it in my chest? Is this Because it will manifest itself physically in your body every single time. Your body and your mind literally are allies. They high-five each other. They are completely aligned. So as soon as you feel that emotional charge, you're guaranteed that you'll feel it somewhere in your body. Then put your hand in and go, oh my God, that's going to be interesting. I feel it there. At home, in the city, with work, it's easy to justify pushing off dealing with the things later. I'll wait till it's the right time to analyze my emotional well-being. Not to mix metaphors, but on the trail, there's only so much you can do to keep those thoughts at bay. Eventually, they come flooding in like a tidal wave. I built up distractions as a makeshift seawall in my everyday life. But here, I found myself swept out to sea wearing floaties and a backpack. Explore this stuff. Really explore this stuff. This is, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that will make you. It really will make you. This, you know, getting up and going to work and getting promoted or doing what that's not going to make you trust me what's what's going to make you what i always say sometimes we can see far better in the dark and things become clearer to us in the dark and that's a kind of weird thing to say and they often care the dark night of the soul you've often heard that phrase but you've had yours you know you've had yours and you've come through it and you've found a way to deal with it what i would say be bloody proud be proud of your humanity to be able to do that, to experience the pain, to have the self-awareness to go, I need to get out of here for a while and I need to disconnect. That is not you running away. Actually, that's a very difficult thing to do. Running away would be training five times a day, would be drinking yourself so you don't have to deal with the actual physical pain. The, the most difficult thing to do would be to pull yourself away from the world and be with your own thoughts. That's powerful stuff and something you should be very proud of because not many human beings would have the courage to do that. So that's what I would say. Well, there, there's the other stuff too. 
<laughs> yeah, well, no, but like, but the reality is, it's still like we we can we can beat ourselves over the head about the other stuff that's inevitably going to happen, or we can look at the stuff that you managed. But you know, we've all experienced grief, and it's torturous, and it's 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 easy to avoid, and that's what our, that's what our culture is 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 basically built upon in terms of our emotional well being: avoidance, avoidance, avoid this difficult stuff. I'm still wrestling with this process. It seems like some days are solidly in the avoiding column, and others definitely fall under feeling. Most of the time, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, feeling just enough to make it seem like I'm doing the work, but not going as deep as I could. But then again, as Niall might say, there's some comfort in that. I just can't let it stop me from feeling anything at all. I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but nature was definitely something that potentially saved my life. Where I live in Westmead, in Mullingar, in the centre of Ireland, we're surrounded by lakes. Beautiful, beautiful glacial lakes. And at my, I suppose at the, at the height of my kind of fight, I don't even like calling it a fight, it was just at the height of my journey with it, I made this call to get into the lake, Loch Ull, every morning. Just to, and like, and Irish lakes are all year round Baltic. They are <laughs> freezing. And if you want to learn what mindfulness is, get into cold water. That is the single best way to make yourself feel alive, to feel mindful, to be present, to understand that you control your breath, that you can control and deal with your panic because that's what happened you get into cold water your body goes into hyper fight or flight you start panicking and you go no I'm going to control my breath it starts to become really empowering and the lake became part of me and so much so that I have a tattoo of me holding the lake in my hands because I think that lake has something special in it what are you going to do? I'm thinking about jumping in this this here pond you're not going to do it? Three, two, one. How was it? I don't know. I've never done cocaine, but I bet that's what it feels like. I go into a different world in nature. It just does something very... I live in one of the most beautiful countries in the world to be outdoors, and even though it rains and it's cold, that rain and that cold is what will make you feel more alive. There's nothing like a northwest wind, north Atlantic west wind cutting the arse off you to make you feel mindful and present. And I've been in California as well. I know California also has one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and I think with, with nature, you don't need to experience, we don't need to see you experiencing nature. Experience it yourself. I don't need to see you taking pictures of it. It's grand. You have your moment. You live that moment. 
you just undermined this whole podcast because it's a spin. It's a, it's essentially a retelling of my experience in nature. So, oh no, well, well, <laughs> no, I'm just it's fun. We are now inside of our tent in our sleeping bags at six yeah. thirty. I'm gonna ready for bed. <laughs> well, gonna eventually make a trek out to go find a poop spot. Yes, this will be your first time pooping in the woods. Have you? I pooped in the wood. What? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> no, I never mind. I've done things. You, okay. Have you dug in a hole? No, I a haven't. A cat hole. I haven't done a cat hole. I take that back. I've pooped in a lake. I <laughs> That's worse. I know. It was horrible. <laughs> Why are you admitting to this? I don't know. This is on record. This, it's horrible. <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail because I Please, could. I don't anyway. want you to. <laughs> it's already too much. Well, you know where to find me if you want the full story. I went swimming in this lake. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> not the poop lake. <laughs> Chicken no. Spring Lake. Yeah, we went to Chicken Spring Lake. We got here in the <laughs> afternoon, and um, we we went. It was cold. Rocky it went all the really way under. I just went up to my yeah. knees. But tomorrow to Rock Creek. Um, anything we missed? Oh yeah, but so I did a 180 in the morning to be like excited and looking forward to everything. And now that it's the nighttime, I am sad again. So hopefully, I'll do another 180 in the morning again <laughs> and be happy, excited. What if someone like tired and diagnoses us when listening to this? Like, hey, I'd take it <laughs> if it's for free. Sure. I'm definitely in the. Um, it's becoming more real, and so the joys that come with that are showing themselves, and the pains and struggles. Yeah, I was tired, and I miss TV, and. Uh, Next time on Trailweight. So did you backpack? You had everything with you mostly? Yeah, we so we, we had two we had three resupplies. The this section This of, is Olympian and filmmaker Alexi Pappas. I, I think it's so wonderful. It's kind of like when we start making a film project or I start thinking about a race, we talk about the film project as if it's gonna happen even when there's no funding or actors assigned, you know, on board. And that's an important way to live, right? And and I think that's very cool. I think that's like, we don't often do that in adulthood because we don't have to. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Epidemic Sound. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Special thanks to Donald Ian Black and Niall Breslin. Nile has a variety of resources on his website, nilebreslin.com, including the Spotify Studios podcasts, Where's My Mind, and Wake Up, Wind Down. All of these and more are linked in the show notes and at trailweight.co. For transcripts and more, visit trailweight.co or follow us online at trailweight on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Podglomerate Original.